So, brothers and sisters, we're going to turn to the third page of your bulletin. I hope everybody was able to get a copy of the bulletin. We have a few more people than I was expecting, so I hope we had enough copies. Uh, And we have the catechism question, which serves as kind of the overarching backbone of our our sermon. But but we have the, the text as well that I'm preaching from tonight. Actually, technically two texts, but we'll get to that. So, let's read together the the two catechism questions, and then I'll read the passage uh, for our sermon. So the question is this, what does God's law require of us? And the answer is, Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. All right, and then our passage that we'll be looking at tonight is 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to see your law and your holiness reflected in your law. Help us to see our hearts and our sinfulness, since we are sinful and our hearts are full of sin. And Lord, finally, help us to see your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he made for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, along the lines of that, that hymn that we just sang, there's this picture of sin and grace that's really kind of beautiful. Grace is like one of those wonderful steam cleaning carpet cleaners, right? (laughs) Sin is like red dye, or perhaps some of that communion wine from this morning, poured on a brilliantly white carpet. When I was a kid, my uncle had just put in a, a home theater down in his basement, and it was carpeted with white carpet. And we went there for Thanksgiving, and I brought my soda downstairs, my red soda downstairs, and I sat down, and I was watching whatever movie we were watching, and somewhere during the movie, I knocked that cup over. And the lights went on, and my uncle's like, don't worry, I'll clean it up. And, you know, he goes, and he cleans it slowly and and methodically, and he got all the stain out. But that stain was, for a moment, to me, like, well, that's the end. I'll never be able to look at my uncle in the eye, you know, because... The stain will be the constant reminder in this white floor of of what I've done. Brothers and sisters, breaking God's law, and and as we're going to look at tonight, God's law will understand what that is, but breaking God's law is not us pouring that soda on that floor. God's law is the spotlight that says, look, the soda is already on the floor. The mess has already been made. The stain is set. 
There's no way to get that out. People look at the law, we talked about this last week, people look at the law as you know, the way to, to earn God's love or the way to get out of the trouble we're in. But the law is the spotlight that says guilty, stained. And Jesus' blood, that blood which washes things clean, blood doesn't usually do that. That blood that washes things clean, it's like a steam cleaner coming through, sucking up all that dirt and restoring perfection. Beautiful white carpet. All right, we're going to move on from the white carpet. Brothers and sisters, this is the thing that we're talking about tonight. God's law and how we stand in contrast with God's law. And then, of course, the fix. We're going to be following this theme through this sermon, through this catechism uh, set of questions, through the passage as well. We're going to be following this theme that by nature we transgress the law and we need God's forgiveness. And we'll be looking at this in three points. First, God's law summarized. Secondly, our guilty nature proclaimed. And then finally, faithful justice demonstrated. So God's law, our guilty nature, and God's faithful justice. I hope I put this in the bulletin. Yes, I did. You'll notice that the first point is about Matthew. And you say, well, we didn't read that. Well, we actually kind of did when we recited the Heidelberg Catechism. This is really the foundation for our first point. We never consent ourselves, brothers and sisters, with a secondary standard. And we ask, what is a secondary standard? The Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism, these are all secondary standards. And we don't content ourselves with the secondary standards. We have one primary standard, and that is... Scripture. scripture, the Bible. And so we only trust the, the standards in as much as they summarize faithfully what the Bible says. So we always compare the, the Heidelberg Catechism with the Bible. Question four is different, and we'll run into a couple of these as we go through the Catechism. Question four is unique in that the answer actually quotes the Bible. The answer quotes Jesus, who is quoting Moses, who is, of course, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the deep biblical truth that we find in question and answer four. The first question that we're looking at developed on the answer to question three that we went through last time. Remember, we answered this question in the last uh, service, in the last uh, sermon from the Heidelberg Catechism. The question was, where do we learn of our sin and our misery? And the answer, of course was from the law of God. And we saw from Romans 3, verse 20, that the primary use of the law for non-believers is to show them their undeniable guilt. The law is not a set of stepping stones that leads us across the river of God's wrath. The law, no, the law is a guilty verdict that says this one is guilty. Before we even read the law of God. Before we break open our Bibles and read the law of God for the first time, we have already fallen far short of his perfect standard, God's perfect standard. So the catechism is, is saying we see our guilt and our misery from God's law. But then it says, don't take our word for it. Let's look at biblical specifics. That's question four. What does God's law require of us? And the answer, as we recited together, was that Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So the question says, what is the substance of this guilty verdict? What is the perfect standard that we have already failed? And the answer goes to Jesus' own words. Now, we remember the context. I don't know if you guys have spent time recently in Matthew 22, especially in the previous verses. But the Sadducees come to Jesus. The Sadducees come with a trap, a trick question. They ask about marriage and heaven. Does any of this sound familiar? Good, okay. This morning, we, yeah, this morning we actually went through this in Steve's sermon. The Sadducees come with a trap and they say, all right, so all these people are married to this woman and they cycle through in heaven. Who is she going to be married to? And Jesus answered them with wisdom. He says, well, (laughs) you're misunderstanding scripture. There's not going to be marriage in heaven. But what we see in Matthew 22 is a continuation of this. The Sadducees failed in their plot to trap Jesus, and now the Pharisees come. They take a crack at it. A a, a legal expert comes and asks Jesus a question about the law. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I don't know if you spot the trap here. You probably do, but I'm I'm just going to go through it anyway. There's a trap here. If Jesus picks one of the Ten Commandments and says, yeah, I think this one is the most important then whether he's true or not, they have the opportunity to say, ah, you're dividing God's law. You're implicitly dividing his nature. You're placing one command of God as more important than others. You heretic. And then they go after him. If Jesus singled out one law, then they would have a road towards calling him out, towards attacking him, perhaps even condemning him. Jesus' answer, though, it's skillful and straightforward. Do we have any doubt that it would be? (laughs) Jesus comes with wisdom and and cunning, and he says, instead of picking one commandment, let's go with the summary of the commandments. He indicates to the law expert, asking him this question, that there are really just two commandments. Today we call these the two tables of the law. There's the first four commandments. Have no other gods before me. Make no images Uh, don't take God's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day holy, I'm sorry. Those are the first four, and they focus on our duty towards God himself. And then there's the second table of the law. Honor your parents. This starts at command five and goes to command ten. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not covet. Those focus on our our duty towards other human beings. Jesus' summary is even simpler, however. He says, really, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's commandments one through four summarized. But then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. That's commandments numbers five through ten summarized. Now, I think we should really see that Jesus emphasizes three things about the law. The law's unity. I'm sorry, the law's demand first, then its unity, and then finally its significance. He talks first about the law's demands. The law demands complete love for God and God's image bearer. The law summed up in one word is love. But it would be way too easy for us to say, oh yeah, God just tells us to love. And we're just going to go off with that and simplify it down. 
There's far more to it in this. We are to love God with every ounce of our being, every fiber of our existence. We're to love our God with heart, soul, and mind. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Moses and Jesus are talking about how we need to love God with every fiber of our being. Every motive, every action, every thought. There's no aspect of our lives that should not be a loving act of service and worship to the one who sent his son for us. But Jesus doesn't just say love God in many ways. No, he says all, all, all. Love God with all of yourself. Think of the ways that you and I fall short of this. You know, God's law is summarized by saying, love God with all of yourself. And we examine our hearts and we say, oh boy, <laughs> sin popping up everywhere. When we sin directly against God and break his commandments, we are not loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. When we just do things for our own pleasure, our own comfort. We're not loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. There's a lot of things that fall in between where we are doing things that are on the outside really good, but we're doing it with selfish motivation. And we say, even that, coming to church so everybody knows how holy I am, even that, brothers and sisters, can be a sin. We are... Guilty when we understand that we have not loved the Lord our God with every fiber of our being for all of our lives. But then we understand there's a second part of the law where to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's where we really say, guilty. I've got some lousy neighbors. I don't love them with my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I don't love my neighbor as myself. No. Brothers and sisters, we're selfish. We think only of our own needs. We mock and we ridicule our neighbor. We have sinned against God in all of the law. Well, so that's the demand of the law. But there's also unity and there's significance to the law. And, and we'll go through these two pretty quickly. The unity of the law. Think about these two tables of the law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. These two are unified. Out of our love for God flows our love for our neighbor. If we love God or we say we love God, but we don't love our neighbor, then do we really love God? We're liars. We're hypocrites. If we love our, love our neighbor and say, well, that's, you know, that's all that's necessary. I don't need to honor God in any other way. Is that any good? No. See, these two work together. Just selfless altruism, practiced altruism, it's not holiness. Being kind to people is not going to get you to heaven. On the other hand, being a holy roller who's hypocritical and doesn't love your neighbor is just as bad. The law is not dividable. It is unified. But the, uh, the law also has biblical significance. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's a peg that holds all of Scripture together. 
The whole of God's word, all of his civil and ceremonial laws, all of his writings and prophecies, they come back to this law. Man owes God complete and utter love and devotion. Truly, man owes God far more than complete love and devotion, but we won't go there. In terms of what we can give God, we deserve, uh, he deserves everything that we have and are. At the very least, he deserves every thought, every motive, every word, every action, every fiber of our being. Because he saved us from our fallen natures and from the guilt that we racked up by sinning against him. So that's the law. That's how guilty we stand before the law. It's one law. It demands our our entire existence. And we say, yep, we are guilty. So get to the good part, Elijah. (laughs) Hang on. We got to percolate in this for a little bit longer because the next catechism question does continue to, to unfold this truth. We now are at our second point, our guilty nature proclaimed. It's not just bad things we do. It's who we are. That's the problem. At this point, we depart from question four and we depart from Matthew 22. We keep it in our minds, of course, and we journey forward in the Bible to 1 John chapter 1. And here we'll be camping out for the remainder of our sermon. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. But before we get into that passage, that beautiful passage, let's look at question and answer number five again. Can you keep all of this? All of the love for God with heart, soul, strength, and mind. All of the love for neighbor as yourself. Can we keep all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Without pausing, the catechism asks, So, can you do all this? Can you keep the law perfectly? Because you know that's what God wants. Can you keep the law perfectly? Now, we know that we're in the section of the Catechism about guilt. We're going to get to grace and gratitude in the years ahead. I'm guessing that you would not be surprised by a negative answer to this question. We expect to hear the answer, no, I will fail at some point and I will fall short. But that's not the language of the Catechism. Instead, the Catechism says, like a a, a, a an excavator trying to do heart surgery. It says, no, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And we say, oof, that's awfully strong language, isn't it? Actually, not really. Unbelievers are constantly giving themselves slack. We talk about, oh, I failed. I failed this week. We talk about, I slipped up. I fell short. We give ourselves an out. But the truth that we should be telling ourselves is, no, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. God is not so squishy with his language. The word of God proclaims that we are by nature enemies of him and enemies of our fellow man. If you feel uncomfortable about this, you think I'm just trying to make you feel bad. Uh, Look at the biblical evidence. We look at Romans 3, where we were last week. Romans 3, Paul goes on and on and on about our sin. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after becoming, I'm sorry, after God. They have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. 
There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now, everybody under 18, you can answer this. What is an asp? What kind of animal is an asp? Are you under 18? (laughs) You're good. (laughs) It's a snake. The poison of a snake is under our tongues. As sinners, we speak poison. Our mouth, or whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the picture of the unconverted. And then Romans 8, the carnal mind, this is Romans 8 verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's saying, before God saves you, you've got a carnal mind. You only care about yourself and the flesh. You're not interested in keeping the law, nor can you be interested in keeping the law. There's no way to please God unless God works first in our hearts. Ephesians 2.1 puts the nail in the coffin for you. He made alive, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul right there, he just slams the lid on us. He says, look, by nature, we are children of wrath. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're not just dead, we're actively enjoying death. We're turned against God, we're set against God, set against our neighbors, we deserve all of the wrath of God. And this is exactly what John is getting into as he starts in in verses 8 and 10 of 1 John 1. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10, yes, we're reading these in isolation. Don't worry, we're going to look at the meat in the middle in a second. John says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, these are parallel, but slightly different. They teach us volumes, however, about our sinful natures. When John says... If we say that we have no sin, he's talking about our state, our nature. We are sinners. We are conceived in sin. And we start, uh, we stand condemned from the moment of conception onward. We are sinners, and without a supernatural act of God, we're going to die as sinners. But in verse 10, John doubles down. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, dot, 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 And now John is talking about our actions that proceed from our nature. We aren't just sinners by nature, but we are sinners who sin. Without Jesus Christ in our hearts, we will only sin. Every thought, every action, every motive, every word, every deed will be sinful and polluted. Our nature and our actions are set against God. We need to look no further than Jesus' summary of the law back in Matthew 22 to know this is true. We look at our hearts and we examine our hearts and especially unbelievers. 
Is everything they do for God's glory? Is everything that they do out of love for God? No. They might have the whole part about loving your neighbor down to some extent, but without the two together, they've fallen short of the law. They've broken God's law. So we have not loved God with all of ourselves. No, we've loved the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've sinned against him more times than we can count. John's words of warning are very clear. If we deny original sin, if we deny a sin nature, if we say that we aren't a sinner now, if we say that, well, people are born morally neutral and they kind of decide at a certain point whether they're going to follow a good path or a bad path. If we say that then we are self-deceived and we are calling God a liar. We're fooling ourselves and we're discarding all of Scripture's teaching that tells us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If we deny our sin nature, if we deny our sin, then we, at the very best, are deluded, self-deceived, foolish Christians. But as John says here, there's a distinct likelihood that the person who says, I don't sin, I wasn't a sinner from birth, This person is not a believer. These are sobering words, but they are necessary words for us to hear. And the Catechism tells us that we are inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And in so doing, it faithfully reiterates biblical truth. We are desperately, hopelessly broken and desperately, hopelessly set against God unless he saves us. By dying for us. The law is no lifeline. The law merely shows us how bad we are and how much we need Jesus. I've seen shirts. I love the the shirt that Loretta's wearing. Got Jesus, it's hell without him. (laughs) I've seen shirts, y'all need Jesus. I think, you know, it's it's very true. The law tells us, y'all need Jesus. And when Christians look back, we don't look back at that with guilt and shame and say, oh no, I'm so, so messed up and I'm so sinful, I'm going to hell and I need Jesus. No, Christians look back and we say, I was saved by Jesus Christ from the law that I broke. I didn't love God with my whole self. I didn't love my neighbor as myself and yet Jesus saved me. Wonder of wonders. Well, let's get to Jesus now. Let's talk about Jesus in this final point, because no sermon is complete without a discussion of what Jesus did for us, what Jesus does for us. This is where we talk about faithful justice demonstrated, and we see this from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It's the meat in the middle of this guilty sandwich. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we could easily spend a whole hour on the ins and the, out, ins and the outs of this verse. I mean, it's so rich. It's so packed with gospel truth. But I think we should be very simple and straightforward when we just look at the, the story of the gospel that is preached to us by John. Unbelievers who confess their sins to Jesus Christ and ask Jesus to save them will not be turned away. Believers who look at the law and see their sin and turn to Jesus again and again will not be turned away. 
Basically, to the repentant sinner, forgiveness is promised by God. God promises forgiveness to people who come and say, God, I sinned. Please forgive me. And you might say, well, okay, that makes some action of ours a a, a contingency. You know, like we have to come to him first. We have to whip up some, some remorse or some grief or some regret. We have to whip up some good feelings and come to Jesus and say, oh, yes, I'm a sinner. The truth is that won't happen unless God works in us first and brings us by his law to a knowledge of our sin. This does speak to unbelievers and believers alike. Though John's audience was primarily believers. Confession of sin is an act that is begun by God. John is not saying you will not be forgiven unless you conjure up some remorse and confess your sins first. No, he is saying to all who look at the law and see their guilt, come to Jesus. He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you of the broken, hopeless sin nature that you had from birth. But why is it important that God is faithful and just? Why is it important that Jesus, our Savior, is faithful and just? The simple answer is that in God's faithfulness, He is full of mercy and long-suffering. He doesn't get tired of our confessions. He hears us and He forgives us over and over. Most of you have experienced uh, young kids and the way that they operate. They come asking for something. Five minutes later, they're asking for another thing. Five minutes later, they're asking for a completely different thing. There was one child I knew who would come and and would sit there and ask me a question. And I'd answer. And they'd say, why? And I'd answer that. And they'd say, why? And I'd answer that. And like 45 minutes later, I'm like, "Mm, I learned my lesson. (laughs) Jesus never runs out of patience. For his children. He's faithful. He loves us. He hears our confessions. He hears our repentance over and over and over. And we trust in his faithfulness. Because he's our father. And he will forgive. He is bound by his merciful nature to love us. Even when we rebel and have to come crawling to him again and again. But he's also just. God is just in his forgiveness of our sin. God knows how we break his law, how we fail to love him with all of our existence. Basically, the first two points. He knows that. He knows that we're messes. And so in his justice, he has every right to wipe us out. But forgiveness meets justice in this way. We confess our sins. We come to to God and he doesn't say, I'm wiping you out. He says, I'm going to be just because I have given you a substitute. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. If God said, no, I will not forgive this sin, he would be unjust. But because of Jesus dying in our place, God is bound by his justice to forgive and forgive and forgive. This is not something he does grudgingly. Don't get that idea from this sermon. Like Jesus has you know, died for us and now God's like, oh, great, I have to forgive these people. No! God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for them. In his justice, God sees the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and demands no more blood. Jesus' sacrifice, sacrifice it pays our penalty and God is bound by his justice to forgive us and cleanse us of our guilt. 
So we talked about that sin nature. We talked about the sins that we walk in. Jesus wipes that clean. And we are cleansed by his blood. That's the grace that we steep in. That's the grace that we delight in. Jesus fulfills God's demand for justice. And he forgives our sin. In this we see his grace. He pours out his love and his righteousness on him, on us. And we're made holy in God's sight. We're accepted in God's sight because of what Jesus did. So brothers and sisters, that's what we have here in these two questions and answers. Yes, we see in God's law that we are required to love him and to love our neighbor with all of our being. And we see that our hearts are deceitful and sinful and we've failed this and we're set against God and our neighbor. And yet Jesus loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ. As our God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And that is how we get rid of that stain and that guilt from the law. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord of all creation, we thank you for your compassion and your faithfulness and your justice. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to fulfill your demands for justice. And we thank you that in Jesus we find mercy, loving kindness, and grace. Lord, help us not to be afraid of the law. Help us instead to recognize that your son kept this law for us. And we stand now wholly before you because of what Jesus did for us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.